All right. Uh, thank you for uh, being friendly with one another. The uh, scripture references that we'll uh, read are listed on your outline. If you want to go ahead and turn to some of those, I'm just going to read them uh, as we come to them on the outline. Uh, The story of David and Goliath is one of the most famous stories in all of human history. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think it would be safe to say that every person in here uh, has heard of the story of David and Goliath. And this story gets referenced many times in uh, many different ways and in, in different, uh, uh, in, in almost any uh, endeavor it, that humans undertake. You know, a, a small college basketball team seated 14th in the NCAA tournament uh, defeats the number three powerhouse from a, a big state and it's a big school and, and what kind of reference is made by the announcer. David beat Goliath. You, you hear this. Uh, a small business enters a field dominated by extremely large companies, and w- within just a few years, they have uh, overtaken most of the market share from that company, and you hear that David defeated Goliath and is now Goliath, is the way that one uh, works. Uh, anytime a person or an organization comes up against another person or organization that's larger, stronger, better resourced, uh, you can bet that a David and Goliath reference is probably uh, going to be made. As we continue our series on taking God-inspired risk, we come today to 1 Samuel 17, where the story of David and Goliath is found. And what we find in 1 Samuel 17 is that Israel and their frequent adversary, the Philistines, are preparing for war against one another. Uh, Chapter 17 begins by telling us that the Philistine army was camped on one hill and the Israelite army was camped on another hill with a valley between them. As the two armies squared off against each other, each day the Philistine champion by the name of uh, Goliath, uh, a fearsome warrior by the name of Goliath, would walk into the valley between the two armies and issue a challenge to Israel. How he challenged Israel is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 10. Here's what it says. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then he would add, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. What's going on here is that uh, Goliath is issuing an invitation to Israel to engage in what's been called uh, different things, representative warfare or champion warfare. It's where each army would put forward their very best warrior. They would fight each other to the death. And whoever won, it was considered that the divine will had been been done and that army would be considered to have gained victory. And so for 40 days, Goliath comes out into this valley and he issues this challenge taunting Israel who does not have a champion that's willing to go out and square off against Israel. Goliath. Verse 11 tells us that on hearing Goliath's challenge, quote, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Terrified. 
thump, thump, terrified. Um, And there was good reason for them to be uh, terrified. If you've read the story, you know a little bit about Goliath. If you have not, let me introduce you to Goliath. We're told in verse 4 that Goliath was over nine feet tall. His helmet and coat of armor weighed somewhere between 125 and 175 pounds. William MacDonald estimates that Goliath probably weighed, get this, somewhere between 600 and 750 pounds. Shaquille O'Neal is a tiny man (laughs) compared to Goliath. The tip of his spear, the iron tip of his spear alone weighed 15 pounds. So he had basically a a shot put on the end of of a long stick. This was an impressive... Is there something I need to do? I'm just standing here. Uh, This was an impressive, imposing, fearsome man. And and you should know that uh, Goliath's size is not the result of a big fish story. You you know what a big fish story is, right? Uh, Goliath's size is not the result of that. It it wasn't embellished with the telling. It it really wasn't. If the testimony of the Bible is not enough for you, and it, it should be, Uh, But if it's not, there are historical attestations apart from the Bible uh, that speak of champions of the size of Goliath in the land of Canaan. This is attested to uh, in history. I guess it's when I touch... No, I can't duplicate what's happening. All right. It's a mystery. My challenge for the morning. Uh, So Israel is being challenged to send someone out And face this hardened, fearsome warrior. And nobody is signing up for the job. Now understand that nobody is signing up for the job even though King Saul has really tried to entice people to sign up for the job. He has promised them great wealth. He has promised them his daughter's hand in marriage. And he has promised that their entire family would be exempted from taxes forever. You would think somebody would, would sign up for that gig. Of course, we don't know much about uh, Saul's daughter, so um, uh, maybe, maybe there was some reason that uh, he couldn't get anyone to take that deal. Just a little joke. All right. So, so enter David, okay? David is not even a member of the army. David only enters the story because Jesse, his dad, was worried about his sons who were a part of the army. And so he sends David with some supplies to take to his brothers with the hope that David will be able to bring back assurances that the boys are safe. And so David does what his father instructs. He arrives at the camp just as the army is, is headed out to the battle positions, shouting the war cry is the way uh, the Bible tells us. And David hears this. And, and he immediately leaves his supplies with the aptly named keeper of supplies <laughs> and, uh, and runs to the battle lines to greet his brothers. And so as David is talking to his brothers, verse 23 tells us that Goliath stepped out, shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. And David also saw this. 
that when the army saw Goliath, they all ran from him in great fear. Now, it's important to understand a couple of things about David at this time in his life. He he eventually becomes a great warrior in his own right. You know, uh, Saul would become very upset because the people would sing songs in the streets that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And so David became a great warrior. But, but here's what we know about David at this point in his life, and that was that he is the youngest of his brothers. He was not part of the army. Verse 33 tells us that he was only a boy. Only a boy. It's estimated that he would have been somewhere around 20 uh, at this time, perhaps a little bit younger according to some estimations. So what we have to understand is the situation that God is setting up here. Goliath is over nine feet tall. He is somewhere between 600 and 750 pounds. He is a battle-hardened, fearsome warrior. And David is only a boy, not part of the army, the youngest of his brothers, on this scene, ostensibly because his daddy wants him to take food to his brothers and bring back word that they're safe. So David hears these taunts of Goliath, and verse 32 says that this only a boy goes to Saul, who has not been able to find a single volunteer from among his very best warriors. And he says... Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. David does what the best warriors in the entire army were unwilling to do. He volunteers to go and fight Goliath. Remember last week how we said uh, in the story of Gideon, we noted that Gideon was reluctant to do what God called him to do. There's no reluctance in David. David volunteers to go out and face this champion of the Philistines. Saul's not impressed. He says in verse 3, you are not able to go out against this Philistine, Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy and he has been a fighting man since his youth. Not to mention he's nine feet tall and weighs 750 pounds. You can't do this. But what other option does Saul have? Nobody else is coming forward. And because no one else will, in verse 37, we read, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David has just signed up for an extremely risky assignment. This is what we're talking about in this series, taking God-inspired Risk. He's just signed up for a risky assignment. As with Gideon last week, this is the kind of assignment where you are either successful or you die. That's as risky as it gets. Successful or you die. David has volunteered for something that is so risky that people will not sign up even though it means wealth a woman, and free from taxes. This is risk at its absolute greatest. Why was David, not even a part of the army, only a boy, willing to take this kind of risk? 
Why would he do it? There may be more, but there are at least three reasons that I believe David was willing to fight Goliath that I want us to consider today. And these are three reasons that I think are very instructive for us in learning to embrace and take our own God-inspired risk. Look with me first at verse 26. Goliath is taunting Israel, and David asks a question. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And then he says something that gives us some understanding as to why he is willing to risk so much. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What's happening here is that David is indignant that anyone would have the audacity to defy the only army on either hill that served the living God. He's indignant. What Goliath is doing is outrageous to David. Defy Israel? Defy Israel's God? Who is this that would do this? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare to do such a thing? Of course, we know that circumcision was the sign of being in covenant with God. And so David is absolutely incredulous that Goliath, someone who is not in covenant with God, could have the audacity to think that he could defeat someone who was in covenant with God. His attitude is, who does he think he is? How dare he do what he's doing? David is willing to face off against Goliath. Because he is righteously indignant at Goliath's affront to the people of God and to God himself. Now look with me at verses 34 through 37. Uh, When David volunteers to take on Goliath, Saul tries to persuade him. And David answers this way. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So you see, once again, David's righteous indignation. This is all going to happen to Goliath because he has defied the armies of the living God. He, he says it again. And then we learn something else, that David is willing to risk facing Goliath because he has a history with God. He has faced risky situations before, and he has seen God deliver him from those risky situations. He tells how on two different occasions, first a lion and then a bear, came and tried to carry off his father's sheep. And and he ran them down, struck them, and rescued the sheep. And then the lion and the bear, acting like lions and bears will act, uh, turned on him. They said, hey, who's taking my dinner? I'll find a replacement meal. And so they, they come after him. They turn their aggression on the one who robbed them of dinner. And so he says that when this happened, he grabbed them by the hair, he struck them, and he killed them. 
You think David had the strength naturally to strike and kill a lion and a bear? I don't. This was supernatural strength. This was God-provided strength in a risky situation. David had experienced this before. His history with God delivering him out of risky and dangerous situations gave him confidence that God could and that God would do it again. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like the lion and the bear because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David was willing to take this risk because he was righteously indignant over the affront that Goliath had, uh, had made to God's people and to God, and because he had a history with God that included being in risky situations and having God deliver him out of them. And then there's a third reason. Look at verses 45 through 47. Here's what they say. David is approaching Goliath, and we read, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Wow. He's serious. Going to cut off his head. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Here is the third reason that David was willing to take risk that others weren't willing to take. David knew that he did not face Goliath in his own power. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. David understood that there is power in the name of the Lord. It is this same David who wrote in the 124th Psalm, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He knew the power of the name. You know, if I have a a policeman's badge on, and I stop you. I may not be able to actually stop you, but the authority that that badge gives me gives power that I otherwise wouldn't have. I don't know about you, but all I have to see is a, is a cruiser sitting on the side of the road, and I've not done anything wrong, and I'm nervous. <laughs> Oh, oh God, help me get past him. Help me get past him. I'm nervous. Now, the guy inside the cruiser, he may be the scrawniest little guy you ever saw. But I'm a nervous wreck. Because I know he has the authority to stop me. And it's similar to this. When David, in covenant with God, faced Goliath, he did not do so in his own name. 
He did it in the name of the Lord. He did it with the power of the Lord. David knew he came in the name of the Lord, and he knew that God's people don't really win battles with swords and spears. He knew that the means of victory, the source of power, was not in having the right weapons, wasn't in having the best resources, wasn't in being bigger or stronger than the enemy. And it's the same lesson that we learn from Gideon. We learn it again here with David. It is not your resources that determine victory. It is your God that determines victory. All those gathered will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Here's what David knew that enabled him to risk facing Goliath. He knew that the battle really was not his. But that as verse 47 says, the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. When a person is on a God-ordained assignment, what they really are is just a tool in God's hands. That's what they are. The fight is not theirs. The fight is God's. He's just using them to fight with. You, you know, we, we know this in so many things that we do in our lives. You know, if I go to play softball, pick up a bat. Do you know that a bat has never one time hit a ball on its own? Ever. It's never happened. The bat is simply a tool that a person uses to hit the ball. When I take a shovel to go dig a hole in my backyard so that I can plant a tree there, I dig the hole. The shovel is just the tool that I use to do that. But without me, there's no hole to put the tree in. The shovel cannot do that. David understood that he was simply a tool in God's hands. He was not going to defeat Goliath. God was going to defeat Goliath. He was just going to let David be the the tool, the instrument that he picked up and used to defeat this fearsome enemy of Israel. David could take these kind of risks because he understood that the battle is the Lord's. Many of you, perhaps most of you, know the end of this story. Verse 48 tells us that as the Philistine moved closer to attack, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Remember, God uses the reluctant, but he also uses the eager. He uses the excited as well. And David was eager. He was was just itching for this fight. So David reached in his bag. He took out a stone. He put it in the sling. He slung it around his head. He released the stone, which made its way to Goliath's forehead, hitting one of the few vulnerable places in Goliath's armor. And Goliath fell face down to the ground. David stood over him, took Goliath's sword, and cut off Goliath's head. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, what did they do? They turned and ran. And God that day gave Israel victory over the Philistines. I love the way verse 50 describes this. 
So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. With a sling. With a stone. He triumphed in the name of the Lord. He triumphed in the power of the living God. Not by sword, not by spear. David accepted a God-ordained assignment that required a God-inspired risk. And what we've learned about David today is instructive for us, even in our day and our time. It gives us insight into how we can be willing to take God-inspired risk in this time and this place. First of all, we can take God-inspired risk when we remember what God has done for us in the past. When we remember how he has shown himself strong on our behalf in the past. And so you're finding yourself struggling. Uh, you know that God is asking you to do something that's a little bit risky. And you're, you're finding yourself uh, struggling against that. Feeling that it's just too risky. I, I don't want to do it. One of the things that you need to do is you need to sit down and remember, remind yourself of all the times in the past when you were obedient to God, when you stepped out in faith in some way, when you took some type of risk and God came through for you. Remember that time when you did overcome your objection and you did risk sharing your faith with your neighbor and the sky did not fall. Remind yourself of that time. Remind yourself of the time that you felt nudged by the Holy Spirit to go pray with someone who had not invited you to pray for them. And when you did, they said, you know, I just feel that prayer was exactly what I needed. I've not been able to articulate for myself the the prayer that I, I, I felt in my heart, but you prayed exactly what I have been trying to pray myself. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of the time at your job when you were given a really difficult assignment. You were afraid you could not do it. You were afraid that your job depended on it and that you were not up to it. And yet you know that you were empowered by God to be able to do that assignment. Remind yourself of all the ways that God has come through for you in the past. If you've walked with God for any length of time, you have some experience of God coming through for you in a dangerous, difficult, uncomfortable, risky situation. And if you have walked with God for any length of time and you say, you know, Brian, I'm sorry, I I just cannot remember a time when God empowered me to face something uh, that I didn't think I could face. Let me just gently suggest that the problem there is your memory, not that God hasn't done anything for you, okay? So it's your memory. So what I would encourage you to do is this, pray this prayer, God, remind me, bring back to my remembrance all of the ways that you have come through for me in the past. Do you know how many times we pray prayers God answers them, 
and it doesn't even dawn on us that God answered the prayer, maybe because what God answered was keeping the status quo the way we wanted it. You know, we're afraid that we're sick, and so we pray, God, please don't let me be sick. And we get the test results back, and we're fine. And then we go on our way as if God didn't do anything for us. And yet God just showed himself strong on our behalf. The problem is our memory, not God's lack of doing anything for us. And so pray that your memory would come to life. And you would remember all the ways that God has shown himself strong on your behalf. When uh, we were a part of Eastside Vineyard Church, I think it's probably 11, 12 years ago now that this happened. Uh, John and Margie Moriarty came to Michelle and said, uh, we were new to the church, I think, I don't know, four or six months in. They came to Michelle and said, hey, uh, you're our new worship director. She didn't see herself as a worship director. She had never been a worship director, did not see that being her thing. And yet they said to her, you're it. And really there was like no negotiating. It was just, you're, you're it. Okay. And God empowered her to do something that she didn't think she could do. And so she can look back on that now and she knows that God strengthened her to do something that in that moment looked, ah, I don't know. I think this is too big. And you have an experience like that somewhere in your history. Remember it. Be encouraged by it. Our history with God empowers us to take God inspired risk right now in the present that God's calling us to. Next, we can take God-inspired risk when we become righteously indignant at the work of the enemy. We need to be righteously indignant. David was willing to face Goliath because he was, he was just absolutely indignant that Goliath was defying the armies of the living God. You know, what would think, what... What makes a person, in these uh, stories you sometimes hear where someone intervenes in a robbery, or or they see someone being beaten and they, they step in in defense of the person that's being beaten, what makes someone do that? Even for someone that they didn't even know. I think what causes people to do that is they are offended by injustice. They, they, they are righteously indignant. There is this feeling that what I am seeing is so outrageously wrong that I cannot just stand here and do nothing. I have to get involved. I have to stop this. So you need to think through some things when you're uh, facing a risk that maybe you don't want to take. Let's take, for example, you feel like the Lord is nudging you to share the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor or a, a family friend or a family member who you sense may be less than receptive. Why would someone be willing to take that kind of risk in our day, in our time, in our culture, when everyone pretty much says, you know what, hey, you believe whatever you want to believe. I'm fine with whatever you believe. Just, just don't bother me with what you believe. Leave me to believe what I want. Why would we press through that and still share the gospel, still share our story, still share about Jesus with someone? Why? It could be that we over time have watched the enemy of that person's soul 
do a number on them. We, we have seen the work of the enemy in their life. We've seen the enemy convince that person over and over again that alcohol or drugs or sex was going to provide happiness. And we've seen them try each of those things. And each time they try, they are left in a worse condition than they were before. And we've seen this downward spiral in this person's life. More and more unhappy, more and more frustrated, more and more empty. And finally, something rises up in you. You become righteously angry at what the enemy is doing in this person's life. And you say... I know what they need. How can I sit by and watch their lives wrecked when I have the answer that can save them from this? And so you become righteously indignant to the point that you say, I have to do something. Why risk offending a friend by saying, hey, you know, uh, I want to talk to you about how you're treating your kids. Why do that? Why would anybody ever take that risk? Can we agree that's a big risk? Why would we do it? Perhaps it's because this friend has watched as as their friend over and over and over has mistreated their kid. Perhaps it's because they have seen the kid's face as they have been belittled by their parent and they, they see the desperation in the kid's eyes. They see the damage the parent's oblivious to. They know the parents are someday going to regret what's happening. They know the child is being damaged. And so finally they say, you know, this is just too wrong. I cannot leave this go. And so they risk it. They say, hey, we need to talk. They talk cautiously. They talk graciously. They talk kindly. But they talk. Because they see a wrong that's being done. And they feel that it has to be corrected. Why would someone risk being a missionary? Going into a far off country where they may face danger. Why would you do that? In many ways it makes no sense to do that. To risk your life for people you do not know. Maybe it's because they realize that entire people groups are being born, living and dying and never hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Condemned to an eternity apart from Christ. They realize that thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people are being kept in darkness by the enemy of their souls. And they say, this is not right. Somebody has to do something about this. And so they say, I'll do it. I don't see anybody else signing up. To go to this place. So I'll be the one who does it. Why does someone risk the disapproval of their family or their best friend? Or why do I risk the disapproval of some of you? To stand up here and say, let's talk about a topic like abortion. Why does someone do that? Why might we decide? To give until it hurts to a pro-life pregnancy center. Why might we decide to stop being silent when the flippant comments about my right to choose are shared around the water cooler or at the staff lunch? 
Why do we risk these kind of things? It's because we finally get to a place where we are indignant about injustice. Where we say what's happening is too awful. I can't just sit silently by. I have to say something. I have to speak up. I have to, in whatever small way I can, I have to try to make a difference. Why would someone leave the comfort of a church family that they, that they like and be involved in planting a church in another place, perhaps in a small rural community somewhere? Perhaps it's because they realize that in that little community, the only churches that are there have all rejected the authority of the Scriptures. Perhaps it's because they realize that the only churches in that community have become really just social clubs with no appreciation for the power of the gospel, don't really believe the gospel anymore, don't really believe that God can deliver people from destructive behaviors. They no longer believe that Jesus is the only way for people to be saved. And so they become righteously indignant that in a town where there are 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, 9,000 people, that those people do not have a single Christ-honoring, Bible-believing church in the whole place. And they say, this isn't right. This isn't right. They become indignant. They, they realize that having a community with no church that's giving a faithful gospel witness means that more people are going to live and die apart from Jesus Christ. And so they say, no, that's not right. Something has to be done about that, even if it's risky, even if it's difficult, even if it requires a lot of sacrifice, something has to be done. Now, I want to make a clear distinction here. Being indignant does not mean we're belligerent. So I, I want to stress that. It doesn't mean acting angry. It just means that we see something rightly as being so unjust, so offensive, that we can't help but do something. Can I share with you that I, I really feel like uh, Christians need to be a little more righteously indignant about some things than what we are? And I will also say this. Christians do a pretty good job of being righteously indignant over things that don't matter much. I mean, we show up late for a ministry that we said we'd come to one time. And some poor leader, I never have the nerve to do this, so it's some other leader, some poor leader says, uh, hey, your clock off? We need, we need you here when you said. And we turn around and say, can you believe some people? I, I just cannot believe it. I was only 37 minutes late. I mean, I was there two minutes before it, the event started. And they had the audacity to ask me if I could start making a priority of being there on time. Righteously indignant over a really wrong thing. 
Wow, that one must have hit close to home because I thought you all would laugh. But you're just sitting there, and you're just sitting there in stunned silence. Uh, can you believe? Can you believe that teenager walked in there with a hat on? Can you believe that? Uh, tell you what, I don't know what the world's coming to today. Hats. <laughs> now look. I don't really like hats in worship any more than the rest of you, but can we get a little perspective? You have no idea what that teenager went through to get here. He might have been here against all odds. If he comes with a hat on, God bless him. We'll love him with a hat on. Did you see the sign out front? Come as you are. You will be loved. So we have things we're good at being righteously indignant about, but they are the wrong things. What we need to be indignant about is the damage that the enemy is doing to people's lives. We, we need to be indignant over injustices. We need to be indignant over things like communities not having Christ-honoring, Bible-believing churches. Those are the kind of things that we need to be indignant about. Like David, we can take God-inspired risk when we become righteously indignant over the work of the enemy. And our final point for today, we can take God-inspired risk as we embrace this truth that the battle really is the Lord's. David absolutely knew that he did not face Goliath on his own. He knew it wasn't by sword or spear that the Lord saves. He knew that the battle he was called to fight really belonged to someone else. Listen, friends, with every assignment God calls us to, It really just amounts to this. He just wants us to be willing to to be picked up by him and used as a tool in his hands. That's all he's really asking us to do. Just be willing to be used by him. The fight doesn't rest on us. The battle is not ours. It's his. We're just instruments, tools that he uses to accomplish accomplish his purposes. We don't fight in our own strength. He provides the strength. We don't share our faith in our own strength. We don't teach a Sunday school class in our own strength. We don't honor Christ by doing a great job for our employer in our own strength. We don't become good husbands or good wives or good parents in our own strength. We don't serve as an English conversation partner for an international student at Ohio State in our own strength. We don't go on a mission trip in our own strength. We don't uh, serve as a long-term missionary in our own strength. We don't plant a church in our own strength. In all of the assignments that God calls us to, we are not on our own. The battle really is God's. When we truly believe that the battle is the Lord's, not ours, we can take these risks that God is calling us to take. So we'll end with a question today. Are you finding yourself in some way avoiding a risk that you believe God has called you to take? From the life of David, learn these things. Remember from your past what God has done and be inspired to be obedient to him this time, knowing that he'll come through for you again. Allow your heart to be moved by injustice and willing to do something about it. Uh, uh, Allow yourself to be offended 
by the work of the enemy in people's lives, the destruction that he's bringing into people's lives, and then trust that every assignment God gives you, the battle is really his. It's really his. He just wants to use you to fight the battle. Why don't you stand?